Feeling tired at the gaming table? Want to hear foul-mouthed jackasses poke fun at gaming companies when they screw up? Want an honest, street-level opinion from a team of gamers that call it like it is? Then Blunt Force Gamers may be the podcast for you. Listener discretion advised. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and gamers of all ages, it is us. Oh yeah. Spicy. Gooey, Chipotle encrusted gamers of various games here to tell you with our sauciness and pickled flavored crust all that you want to know about role playing and stuff. Because I had to throw in the obligatory and stuff. <laughs> I am Game Goblin, sitting beside me is Kazakhan, the Lord Dragon. And dark blasphemous, hail to the dark side, as I sit farther away from my mic. <laughs> yes, well, he has been informed that he has been blowing out people's eardrums as of late, so... Yeah, he's sitting farther <laughs> away from his mic, which is far more powerful. Is a fully armed and operational recording device. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, it's... Uh... It's going to be a fun one, folks. I am particularly interested in our topic, and I hope that our leader here, duly elected, uh, oh, will God damn it. in. <laughs> Unlike some people, I was duly elected by democratic process, unfortunately. As they say, there's three kinds of leaders in the world. Those who attain leadership by clawing their way up and doing everything they can to become a leader. Those who have the mantle of leadership thrust upon their shoulders, and those who receive it as a graduation present. <laughs> <clears throat> well, <laughs> anywho, yes, I am actually exuberant, ecstatic, <laughs> eclectic about today's dissemination of words. You just trying to sound fancy there, Goblin? No, I'm spacing out over <laughs> what our topic is. It was. Dun, dun, dun. I'm drawing a void here. It's, <laughs> it's all black to me. Maybe there's a, a spot of light in the darkness. Uh, let's see. What was it? <laughs> you can hear the hamster just trying to get that wheel going. I don't know. It's Not just succeeding very well. Today's huh. topic is very alien to me. <laughs> you know? All right, I'm tired of the slow roll. We are getting into Galactic Empire stuff for gaming. Whether it's fantasy or modern sci-fi, cyberpunk, what have you. Um, and everything in between. Part of the stuff that's doing this on is there's been a lot of news about Star Wars. We're not going to get into it because, well, we don't I love you, Gina Carano. Yes. Uh, but... We have a lot of other Galactic Empires to look at. I mean, you can look at the pitiful excuse that is the Federation in Star Trek, you know, controlling a quarter of a sector, uh, to Star Wars, which controlled almost, what, 70% of their galaxy? Unlimited minutes! <laughs> um, I mean power! <laughs> Forget about the phone plan! And then you have other ones, such as our main topic, which is the Foundation. Um, 
any sci-fi reader should really give it a try. It's, of course, a classic by Isaac Asimov. We all know him. We all love him. What's the other stuff he's famous for? You guys are older than me. Well, he's well, famous are. for writing books. Well, yeah, har har. Um, the most notable is Asimov's Laws of Robotics. Uh, iRobot is, I think, one of his as well. The original, right? Not the screenplay, per se. Um, I, I feel didn't realize like a... persons could say anything. <laughs> Boy. I'm sure in some galaxy they do. The laws of robotics are bullshit. Well, it's, a, it's a utopian mindset that there will never be a glitch in the Matrix. Yeah. Which is exactly proved in the, in the book what happens when there is, or a misinterpretation of those rules. Which also leads to stuff such as Skynet or um, uh, yep. Space Odyssey 2021. Mm-hmm. Or no, 20, two, 2001 Space Odyssey. Wrong one. <laughs> In 2001 Space Odyssey. There yes. you go. That's the one. That was the first one, yes. So, Asimov has a lot of a lot of works under his belt, and they're they're fairly good reads, if very heavy on the techno babble. So, if that's your shtick, dive in. They're really good. I remember them from a lot long ago. But I was more of a Pierce Anthony guy myself. Yeah. Fantasy. I, yeah, I read those too. Yep. Good author. What little I read was usually fantasy, but it it really got all over the place. But looking at this, it's the first real introspective into a real galactic-spanning empire. And it goes into the stuff of the decline of an empire, and how would we run that in a game? Like, say we're doing... Well, you guys are doing a sci-fi campaign, if I remember correctly. Eh, post-apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic. But, but if they go into space, yeah, then it could turn into a uh, sci-fi game real easy. Oh, yeah. Starting at uh, Centaur. Mm -hmm. I, I just love saying it that way because that's like the core world of trade. <laughs> then you have your different factions, then you got the Corkscrew Galaxy and the fucking Anvil Nebula or whatever it is. Just, ugh. On and on it goes. It, on and on it goes. That's the thing, though, is running a galactic sized campaign takes a galactic size of resources and notes. First rule is, and Asimov was great about this, as well as many of the other authors of that time leading all the way up till now, when they do fantasy, the good ones, the Few ones that people uh, yeah, the ones that people like have this thing called consistency. They have <laughs> specific rules. And when you are writing a science fiction game uh, for your group, you have to stick to your rules. The way gravity works, the way uh, interstellar travel works, fuck even radiation. The way it affects certain life forms may be different than others. You have to stay consistent and within those rules. And you can't get really wibbly-nibbly. You can only break so many laws of physics before it becomes pure fantasy and not just science fiction. So if you want science fiction, you have to have a degree of relatability and... Ironclad rules. Ironclad rules. Something science that, is ironclad. Science fantasy is Fantasy is wibbly. Yeah, so fantasy is really wibbly-nibbly. So if you break too many rules... That comfort zone that your players have of being comfortable in your game and ex having their expectations of the way things work will be there. If you just get all wibbly-nibbly and you start breaking every law of physics... If suddenly, say, a, a side character supermans through space... Yeah, suddenly a side character supermans through space, or if a star collapses and an effect other than a black hole is created, or a massive explosion... 
you know, supernova or that sort of event. Yeah. You, you should have an explanation already pre-designed for that and be like, well, under these specific circumstances in this setting, this is the result of this happening. So your players know what to expect because you can't break too many rules. And you can't do that. Well, it was a one in a trillion shot and that one time it worked. Sorry, but even RN Jesus doesn't do it that way. Yeah, it takes a lot. And like... You know, on the, on the subject of Galactic Empires, there is a lot of management that goes in from the top level as well. Even just at, you know, governing a sector with several habitized planets, that's a lot of bureau bureaucracy and paperwork and insane management. A galactic spanning game will take forever to accomplish, to play through, to explore. Start with uh, simple fantasy games when you start out with and just try to create a cohesive and coherent kingdom. And that's just one kingdom. And then, you know, when you move this up to galactic scale, that is so much goddamn red tape. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Like, playing games of Stellaris, a single game of Stellaris can run 40, 50, 60 hours. Easy. And that's just playing alone. That's, yeah. that's not even playing with other people and trying to coordinate that scheduling. It is a long game. The galactic scene is a very big place, and it needs to be treated with the same respect. And especially one of the key things I've run into is the travel between worlds. you got to have a consistency. Is, it, is the distance an issue? Is the mode of FTL viable? Is there special one-off events that go on like it's not 40k where oh we're so edgy we jump through hell in order to get to where we're going sometimes people just don't show up on the other side <laughs> heresy <laughs> but yeah you know it's like uh, warp or you're using um hyperspace or holes or, or portal gates which, of course, if you rewatch Voyager and keep a actual tab of distance traveled and time traveled, somewhere around, I believe it's season three, they start falling off, and there's like five years unaccounted for. Like, they start off, and they're like, oh, we have 70 years to travel X amount of light years to get back home. And then they do like a 20-year jump, and then they do like a 10-year jump, and then there's another 10-year jump. And by the time you get to season five, you're like, if you're keeping count, there's like a five or ten year gap that they're not accounting for anywhere. That's breaking the rules. A player is going to be a lot more mindful of what's going on rather than a passive viewer of a TV show. Players are going to pay attention to stuff like this, especially Captain Note Taker. If you say, oh, you know, you're running off the warp scale, and of course if you want to simplify it, warp one is one-tenth of the speed of light. Mm-hmm. You know, warp 9.97 is 9.97 time or uh, of the speed of light. Pretty goddamn fast. Yeah. And if you tr if you jimmy this up a little bit, and you're like, oh, it'll only take you, you know, like three months to travel from point A to point B at warp five. Some player who's probably got their notes sitting there will be like, well, actually, this is really far. Again, yeah. consistency. You know, even just setting up a map for whatever your system is, even if it's like. Fucking Stargate. You got fucking wormhole gates on all habitable worlds and a couple that aren't. And you still got to know the code. So every time you got to have someone try and punch in the code correctly. Yeah. And that's actually a really good example is the Stargate universe brings this up is that 
faster than light travel is straight up teleportation. But we've seen that, that, that even those portals, those stargates, can do wibbly things. There's been episodes where they've been sent back or forward or sideways in time. Or just drifting in space and they have to mathematically calculate where the hell that stargate is at that point. Yeah. And where it's going to be like an hour from now. Or what if your enemy brings a stargate and when they do the update, because they have a dial device, then all of a sudden your stargate's offline because it's considered the secondary. Yep. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of strict rules that go into that, but there's also very good explanations for when those rules get broken. And it's not exactly you know gremlins. <laughs> it ain't exactly gremlins. Yeah, space gremlins. I mean, you'd think they'd that find them by now. That was supposedly going to be another sequel to that. <laughs> Somehow I'm not even surprised. No, no, no! Please don't. At least yeah. like. With the great the God, what was her name? That gal that was in Gremlins. I don't know. I still would. <laughs> so fast, dude. I would. I would hit that with tectonic force. And I'm not saying hit with my fists. I'm saying hit with my hips. <laughs> you would make the beast of two backs. <laughs> I would. I would hit it so hard, Atlas would shrug. Anyways, uh, but when it comes to the transport in gaming, you know, in Star Wars, it's mainly the expanded universe books that gave us a breakdown of how it works, and the ratings on these drives is what drove it. You know, they they all worked at a speed, and it's just how good yours was, and how massive your ship was. Meanwhile, in Star Trek, it seems to be all over the place. Oh, yeah. Like, there are so many different civilizations with interstellar travel and they all have rather different ways to do it from what I remember. I'm not too big on the Star Trek lore, but I remember that they have very different methods of measuring at least how they do it. The end result is always the same though, as they expel energy at a high enough velocity to propel their ship forward. And that's the basics of space travel right there. How do I move forward? Yeah. Regardless... Again, this is another thing, too, is if you're including multiple species in your game table in almost every RPG, whether you're playing Space D&D and you got Space Elves and Space Scrow and Space Orcs, or if you're playing a far future fantasy game and you've got androids, you've got, of course, humans because they're the baseline, and then you've got Alien Council. you got basically the Council of Greys running around, whatever. There are still going to be rules as to how each one of them approaches uh, space travel. Again, like Star, uh, like Star uh, Trek. Trek, Trek. Well, Star Wars keeps is very homogenous with its space travel. The Mon Calamari, they never really get into how their ships operate fundamentally differently than the Bothans or the Huts or mm-hmm. the Chiss. In Star Trek, they do talk about this: that the early space travelers, say the Cardassians, used solar sails. Yeah, well, that's how they got the Cardassia Prime. Mm-hmm. Uh, supposedly, that that's a whole. Well, there's also, that can be a lore video in itself. There's also mm-hmm. a thing you do in a lot of these big galactic games is you have a precursor race who went around planting seeds of life. There are you know, several they, different mythos that you can adapt with that, and every culture, every alien species, every world is going to have a different interpretation of this. Maybe there was a precursor race that did go, you know, around tootling 
panspermia. Oh, let's just throw a meteorite with a bunch of life on it. Mm, there. There. Just throw it around at random. That's and There's a whole bunch of stuff like that. Even beyond that, they had obviously the best of the best of the honors, West Point Sir, for ship travel, like in Star Trek. They had those Infinity Gate. Or no, Infinity Gates were Star Wars. Star Trek, they had a gate that they could just dial in and pop out anywhere. Oh, yeah, the uh, Iconian Gates. Yeah. Again, another reference to Voyager. Well, they also did that in DS9. Yeah, the, the Iconians uh, were in <clears throat> DS9 and Voyager. And they had the uh, jump gates all over the place, which I believe were being utilized primarily by the Solanae. I believe it's, so. It's been a while. And, and then you go beyond that. They always star gate itself. They are literally gates where you can hop to any place where there's another gate. And they end up using all the stuff to jump to a ship that is literally flying around the universe, planting gates everywhere it goes. Yep. And then they made a whole series out of that, too. Yeah, but that was a shit series. A very shit series. When it goes from, let's explore the galaxy and new cultures, to who is the main character fucking this week? Yeah, it sort of took a downhill turn real quick. It turned into a telenovela in space. And even then... I still say us Hispanics do it better. You know, actually, that probably would have made Stargate better. It's just to have somebody running around in a bee costume. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> but, but still, you know, and then not even beyond that, communication systems. How do those work? Because we've seen in Star Trek several times, someone gets stuck in a quantum singularity. You know, they're screwed in time. When they finally get out of it, there's a you know, satellite that's positioned at regular intervals across the the current galaxy where you can just ping it and get the latest information. Ooh, 200 years just magically jumped by us. Oh, that's actually uh, something they did in Mass Effect early on. Mm. Um, I believe it was in the first game when you get through, I believe, your first or second mission, you have to file a report, of course, with the Admiralty Board back at Earth. So, Joker navigates the ship towards a a buoy, basically. So you stop by a communications hub. So you're in range of that. You 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 package your data up. You send your message, and it goes through the relay networks, mm -hmm. not the actual relays that make your ship jump. Not the mass relays, but not the, the mass relays. The signal relays. But basically, yeah, signal relays. It goes through that all the way back to Earth, and you communicate. And there is a slight bit of delay, delay but they don't really go crazy with how long the delay is because, well, if it's hours. We gamers are not patient enough to sit there and just stare at a screen where the character's standing still for hours waiting for a reply. Mm -hmm. uh, in the third game, or no, second game, second game actually, the Cerberus organization, after doing the Lazarus Project, brings back the main character. You are talking in true time at any point where your spaceship travels. Talking in true time with the elusive man because he went out and broke the rules... He, he went for a direct quantum entanglement Yeah, he went for direct, uh, direct quantum entanglement uh, communication. So one part of the entanglement is at his location, the other is on your ship. So no matter where you are, you can communicate at any time. But this technology was not previously available. So how do they explain it? It costs a metric shit ton. Yeah. It's so it's not available for everybody. So on one hand, they broke the rules, but they had a good explanation Again, I'm going back to that adage that, you know, when you do break the rules in your game, have a good explanation. Oh, well, and then you go into other stuff, like in Star Wars, I know they had subspace communication relays. 
Um, they also had, uh, was it, hyperspace communication that they were capable of doing. Subspace was weird. Yeah, it was. It was kind of a eh thing, but... It was like a concept they made up, and they were starting to roll with it, and then when the writers were just writing some stuff, they'll say, blame subspace. Nobody really knows what it is. It's like frosting, but there's no cake underneath. <laughs> yeah. You just make some shit up. What's underneath the frosting? I don't know. It's Schrodinger's cake. Oh, God. And then you want to talk about one of the greatest shows, The Orville. <laughs> you know, and they literally have to, like... They can send communication, and there's delays. And then they'll get to uh, a station, and then there's all their information that was trying to be sent. I mean, I think they did that really good. And with their uh, hyperspace, they didn't really give us time frames on anything, but... That's actually one of the better parts about uh, some of these space operas, is they do leave it wibbly-nibbly. When it comes to time frames, you're just like, oh, we're traveling to X... YZ location, and especially at the start of a lot of Star Trek episodes, and Star Wars does the same, and a few other uh, TV shows, they're like, it'll just take us X amount of time. And they leave it at that. They're like, oh, it'll take us three hours to get to planet Y. Mm -hmm. They don't explain it. They don't explain how the Empire got just outside of Alderaan. They didn't even say where the Death Star is parked. They're just like, we're headed there. Yeah. You know, they just glossed over the techno babble. And did it, which is, you know, something we all do in a role-playing game. Is sometimes you just gotta gloss over shit. A wizard did it. A wizard did it. <laughs> you gotta know when to gloss over things. It's, yeah. It's just absolutely. like, we're opening the scene, you're aboard this ship, you have three hours, what are your characters doing? You don't have to explain how fast the ship is going, what kind of anomalies you're passing through, what nebulas are passing outside the window, you just say it's going to take three hours. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. And if you're playing whole, then you have this whole actually on a sideline. If you're playing a comedy style game, they have one of the grossest examples of a jump drive, if you want to call it that. It's the byproduct of jump slugs mating. <laughs> you take two jump slugs and you have a chamber where you put the jump slugs together and they start getting frisky. And the energy effects make your ship go. (laughs) (laughs) And they actually have like a really fucked up clash you can play in that game, which is a jump slug tender. (laughs) Oh no. Which, in their description, borders on somebody who may have to... uh, It's like being a farmer and having to milk the stallions to get Mm. get the stallion to do stuff with the mare. So yeah, that's a playable class. He's got to lick the slug. It's got, yeah, you got to lick the slug. You got to give it a little rub down, maybe some lotion. Oh, jeez. Uh, so what if it's a masochist slug? Do you got to like touch a salt rock to it for a second? <laughs> Throw some rock salt at it, and it's just like, oh yeah, I'm in the mood now. Regardless, though, Hole does have, despite being weird as fuck. These are still set in concrete rules. Yeah. Your ship will not travel without jump slugs in the chamber doing jump slug things. Your your ship in Star Trek will not go without the warp drive, which is the core power, actually being engaged and with intolerance. Your ship in Star Wars will not go if it's arguing with itself. Anybody who's read the expanded universe knows that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And... 
Hell, even Moya couldn't uh, do jumps more than like X amount of times. Well, yeah, and it was biological. Well, it was even biological. Even yes. then, Moya had to have a symbiont to be a viable vessel for, you know, everybody else. The symbiont being Pilot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The two of them had to work together, and of course, there's a bunch of back talk that goes with that. But I actually really liked the those series. That was a great series, and Moya was such a fun it ship. It got far too. It was great for the first. E, uh, right around the season when the guy's son was introduced. Yeah, and yeah. When Dargo's uh, son was introduced, and uh, the weird witch lady. That's when they started losing me. Yeah, and, and I have nothing against the actor, but I hate Stark. Stark, which one was that? Stark was the guy with like the weird thing over like one half of his face, like Phantom of the Opera with one eye cover. Oh, right, he's the one that got expelled into energy and then reformed himself later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, whack shit. Yeah. But, you know, these Semi -quantum are... Semi-quantum being? Semi-quantum, yeah. These are actually very interesting things to bring up because all of these are technically, arguably, viable means of space travel and even interstellar travel. Like, Moya was capable of jumping between stars. She was also capable of just going really fast. Which so <laughs> brings us back to empire building <laughs> and precursor races. Booyah. Because the peacekeepers, when we first meet them, are chasing after Moya. But how did the peacekeepers get there? A precursor race needed a galactic space force. Yep. They needed, basically, space police. So they grabbed a bunch of humans off some backwater planet... And altered them to be more conditioned for the environment of living in space long term. And boom, space police. Bam. So we got our precursor race. We have actually a... Uh, a well, they were in power for some time, of course. By the time John Crichton enters the scene, they're not. And the peacekeepers are now basically a military force without guidance. They have all these guns. What do we do with them? Eh, we, got we got all these cruisers. What do we do with them? Let's police them even more, because they're not—they're no longer receiving orders. They, you know, they're—they're they're a servitor race, basically. Yeah. So they just keep doing what they're doing. Yeah, yeah and you know, the, on the subject of dealing with time delay in communication, right? If you have psionics or some method for your race, even just singletons of that race, to. To predict or launch into the future somehow, you know, psionics and precognition and all that, all that crazy bullshit. Because you can do that. You can do that in space. That's that's another way to deal with communication delays. Is oh, we're just gonna send this ahead of you because it'll have all your res all the responses that you're going to ask questions to. Have fun. I don't know. I'd be kind of a dick. Uh, in that situation, let's say the player characters are working for... Uh, they're doing like a space cyberpunk game, and they're working for XYZ Corporation, and they're going to be attacking the barbecue headquarters, and they send out their message, you know, are they going to be all clear for this run? And I'll be like, all right, your character's going to have to wait 10 hours for a reply. 10 hours, what do you do? And those who are silent, I'm like, well, your character's starting to get hungry at about 2 o'clock two in the afternoon. You know, oh, you're getting a knot in your back from standing around doing nothing and waiting. Your feet are kind of sore. It's just like, what would happen in real life if you just stood idle for ten hours, dude? Like, mm -hmm. your, your knees are getting sore. You need to sit down. You're getting hungry. You right. sneeze. You know, just just sit there and be a complete dork GM to them. 
Just oh, so one of you farts and it's really bad. Yeah, one of you must have had something bad with your protein pack this morning because, you know, you're getting a little squeaker action going on. Oh, oh, oh. another great, great series. Um, Altered Carbon. Yeah, that was an interesting yeah, take on a know, far future society. Not necessarily an interstellar one, I don't believe. They weren't interstellar. They were... Uh, they were still interplanetary, pla- but their thing was you couldn't physically traveling took forever and was really hard. So everyone started to get these little chips implanted in them at a certain age, which was stuck in your spinal cord, and you could needle cast from one body to another. So you could transmit data, which was your being, and it would leave one body and enter another, or people could dual cast, but then it did weird things to the psychology of it. And it was interesting because they put one guy on ice for, like, almost 300 years. And then brought him out, and it was like nothing had happened. He literally, yesterday was the day before he almost murdered his sister. And he didn't know the wiser. And it's interesting stuff, and the whole thing of cloning bodies, so you always have the exact body you want anywhere in the galaxy. Or across a planet. Yeah. Interesting ideas, and a lot of interesting, like, societal cues that you can pull from that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of wealth inequality, from what, I, what little I remember of it. Uh, there's a lot of, sort of, almost aristocracy at play. Because mm-hmm. those who have the money can afford to have their presence in more places at once, and were therefore, by choice or by fighting for... The leaders that got there mm-hmm. and this it's an interesting way to do it and there's also you know galactic empires are going more likely than not are going to have more than one species in it some of those may be servitor races as mentioned with the peacekeepers others who knows robots you know you could even run an entire campaign where like alright this galaxy is literally only populated with elves what a horrible galaxy. Yeah, yeah. Aye. <laughs> Where do the drow live? Well, Probably. no, you see, they were exterminated. There's just like a cluster of subterranean planets, and the drow are known for, like, killing people and doing horrible things, but they never come out because the sun's out? No, wait, wait, wait. They always live on the lower levels of the techno planets. Oh. Mm, yeah. Or they're the ones who constantly live on ships and never go planet side. Okay. Just it would still be horrible—an entire galaxy filled with elves. And again, <laughs> galaxies—we're talking about a lot of freaking space. I mean, just to take in what we have here—you know—just trying to visualize our solar system is not exactly easy. Once you start getting out past, past you know, like Neptune and shit, you know, like imagining you know, does the distance between us and Saturn not too horrible? Not too horrible. It's it's still fairly big, but con- conceivable. But once you start getting out there, like in you know the triple digit astronomical units, just the brain starts going, oh, it's really far. Well, think about Pluto's it. out there somewhere. We launched the set. What was that? Voyager satellites. And I saw just reached the edge of our solar system. They're out beyond the sun's farthest. You know, gravitational, gravitational solar array, and they're like, "Yeah, the galactic winds are fucking just terrible." <laughs> yeah, they, they call it the um, 
like a field of fire in comparison to how calm it is when you're within our own solar system. And it took them what? That was launched in the 70s? Yeah, it actually so. uh, sent back a picture. It's like the farthest known photograph of Earth. And it's like a dot. And it's just a little dot. So you're dealing with a massive amount of space. And when you start talking galactic empires, yes. it gets really... Of course, you know, as a, a role player, you know, it's dumbed down immensely just how fucking, fucking massive it is. Well, for comparison... Goblin has run an entire campaign, and we didn't even leave the continent with how much we explored. And we went pretty damn far in that campaign. We didn't even leave the continent. That's still on the same planet. That's still... A percentage of the livable surface. A, a, small, a, a small, relatively small percentage yeah. of, the, of the livable surface. And we still had to deal with, like, what, a dozen or so different races and their cultures and various nations. Yeah, there was still that, and there were still other continents that were influencing the continent you were on that you guys never even set foot on. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And, so and that was one fucking continent. That was one continent. No, so when you're dealing on a galactic scale or even just multiple solar systems, mm. you're, you're getting into some huge fucking shit right there. I mean, you could end up like in the expanse where... Just traveling around the known solar system is an immensity, and then they open up alien gateways from a precursor race that open up 32,000 other planets and solar systems that are habitable. I, I would have to say, though, if I was running a, a galactic empire campaign with all of the politics in it and all of the... Uh, strange stuff that we're covering, you know, because different planets will rule different ways. Even if there is an emperor, you might... You're obviously going to get people who are far enough out, and they do it really good on this in Star Trek or Star Wars. You know, you yes. get people far enough out on the outer rims, and they just kind of don't care. They just do their own thing. They're far enough out there. They can be Florida Man, and the Galactic Empire and Coruscant doesn't care. Well, it's one of those things where it, it really depends on the state of where the Empire's at. Because if you're in the early expansion era then yeah, they just want to keep moving and planting flags. And when you're out there on the outskirts, it's like, who cares? But when you're in the stable zone in the center, people get bored and have to care about something, as we're seeing nowadays. And then you get beyond that to the decline, and that's when shit gets real. Because on the decline, you have all this amazing technology, and now it's whoever can use it controls it. Exactly, and and also you, you if you're doing a campaign where the empire is in decline, like um, aforementioned, not related to the SCP, the foundation, foundation, yes, uh, a empire in decline though is going to have a lot of people, and they do mention this in the foundation. You know, there's four uh, warlords that rise up. You're going to have this if a uh, empire or nation goes in decline, there becomes a resource grab. You tear down the aqueducts to build new houses if Rome is no longer there to need the aqueducts. Yeah, and this is true basically anywhere. Like, any... Even if it is one galactic empire and two or three of its neighbors, and the one in the middle goes down, you've now got two galactic empires that are fighting over the same zone. Because mm -hmm. every resource is valuable somehow. It's just how it's used. Well, even in looking at this, because I just finished this chapter earlier today when I was driving, it's an audiobook, don't worry. Um, it was four uh, kingdoms 
which were part uh, they were prefects uh, prefectures before that that were part of a basically like a, they're they're like counties basically in, under a state which was then part of the whole country which was the Galactic Empire so that that's like King County uh, Snohomish Snohomish County and the island island it's like them three being at power and they're fighting for control all right well just for example for those who don't live it where we do geographically just take the three closest counties you live in imagine them fighting over territory and technology and if you live in Texas it's kind of like deep space (laughs) (laughs) I I I hope the meme is true just a little bit of me Mm. that uh our, our favorite supervillain, uh, Lex Luthor, I mean Elon Musk, is actually going to buy a town in Texas and give it some really fucking snappy, like, what was the name of it? Like, Space Town or something? Mm-hmm. He wanted to give it, like, some Space Age name and, like, make Doge the official mascot and stuff. He's just like, come on, do it. Please, <laughs> make the meme real. Oh, please, there, there's a town in New Mexico that changed its name to Truth or Consequences because of a game show. Yeah, yeah. Still, Galactic Empires are freaking huge. And one thing I would, and I was going to make this point earlier, but we got distracted. It happens. Like we do. Like we do. But the point I wanted to make earlier is one rule to definitely keep in mind for the GM side is to keep things simple when it comes to the physics of your Galactic Empire. Because as we know, galaxies are massive places. They're filled with planets, gas clouds, and nebulas. Black holes, quasars, quarks, singlets, maybe dark matter. We're still out on the jury's still out on that one. Regardless, like our solar system isn't just spinning around like a bunch of marbles on a plate, but more like a bunch of marbles spinning on a plate while that plate is being flung through the air. And imagine if you're playing and there's a galactic empire, and in order to get a threat. You literally have another galaxy coming in close contact with your galaxy, like, physically. We're getting there in a few more million years. A billion years. Yeah. I'll be dead. I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) By then, I will be so many particulates of dust, it doesn't matter. What I'm trying to say, though, is, like, for space travel, one of the things to keep simple is the physics of your game in a lot of maps that show the Galactic Empires. They did this with Federation... They do it with Star Wars. They definitely do it with Star Trek, the way they got the quadrant set up. Mm-hmm. They make the map of the galaxy a two-dimensional plane. You're looking top-down at it. The massive epicenter is in the middle of the galaxy, and everything spreads out along the arms from there. But if you were to look at it as a true 3D plane, with the way things are moving, if we were to leave Earth in real life now and just hop over to the next solar system over... Uh, what, isn't that Alpha Centauri? I think it's the, still the closest. No, I'm saying solar system. Yeah. That, 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 isn't Alpha Centauri the next galaxy? Next galaxy. Oh, I didn't thought... I thought it was a system. Well, so. Proving my ignorance, I guess. Okay, well, just... Here, simplify it. You run over to the Horsehead Nebula. And then you decide to come back to Earth. Earth will not still be spinning on that flat disk you left. It will have rocketed off. Somewhere else. Out, so you're going to have to go find it thing is, as long as you keep your game set on a 2D plane and people say, well, I leave Earth, I go to the Horsehead Nebula, and then I come back to Earth, it makes life a ton of simpler and you will like get rid of a shit ton of math that you don't even want to learn how to do. 
and the players will love you for it because it's simple. You're just like, oh, yeah, it takes X amount of time to go there, X amount of time to come back, done. The next nearest star to our sun is Proximus, or Proxima Centauri. Okay. So, there you go. Or if you fly out the Beetlejuice. <laughs> now, Beetlejuice. I, I actually really liked the way they did the star maps in Titan AE. There's a scene where Kale fixes, like he just walks in, oh, this is what's wrong. Click, 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 fixes it. And instead, it's now going at a proper speed instead of just whipping around like you'd expect galaxies to actually do at ridiculous speeds. Well, but he was, is a main character. He can just hit buttons and shit happens. Yes, and like disregarding that whole side of things, that's okay. off to the side. Okay. The actual display was a conical display, so it was a great big cone of 3D space, full hologram. Uh, you saw this also in Treasure Planet. When they reach the actual Treasure Planet, the map that Flynn used to create his gates around, you know, the galaxy for piracy was a 3D orb. Well, this is one of the other things that, we're, that as far as simplicity goes, when building your galactic empire for your game, to keep it more like a fantasy game setting, of course, you know, the 2D map, of course, helps. And, of course, ignore speed. Yeah. Uh, one of those things. When you're dealing with a solar system, just be like, okay, the third planet from the sun and the fifth planet of the sun were at these locations and you left, and random roll where in their orbit they are when you get back. That's good enough. You do not have to get like <laughs> deep into the nitty-gritty of where those planets are and orbital velocities and... Gravitational uh, variance. Gravitational variance or gravitational Rotation, eddies. spin... Well, things are moving so fast. It's like, how fast is the Earth moving around the sun? Right? How fast is Mercury moving around the sun? How fast is our solar system itself moving at its gradient plane? Right. You so take in all math. these numbers of how fast things are moving. Like, when we talk about, you know, how fast a meteorite, you know, is going to impact. These speeds are phenomenal. They're huge. And then we, like, talk about comets and stuff. They're moving at... Crazy speed. Insane crazy speeds with lots of zeros behind them. When you're running your space empire, don't worry about these. The only thing you really need to worry about is how fast the player character ship is and how fast the NPC ships are. Yeah, basically. It keeps it really simple. There's a lot less note taking, and you don't need somebody with. Uh, you don't need Neil deGrasse Tyson to come over and tell you, well, actually. <laughs> duh, 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 duh. Do the your math. character's a badass over here. Yeah, and. The other thing I'm thinking of is, like, because of those phenomenal speeds, you're dealing... Like, those meteorites are a very big problem for space travel unless you built... Unless you'd be like, oh, yeah, it's got a defense system for it. Just leave it as that. Yeah, of course. Because you're, you're designing like, your spaceships, uh, and most... Uh, fuck, most... Almost every cinema comes up with some explanation as to why the ship isn't sheared into small, tiny little pieces of nothing by space dust... Star Trek, of course, has deflector arrays on the front, which pushes uh, the chuffa out of the way as the ship flies forward. Mm -hmm. you know, that's why the ships typically go faster forward and slower backwards, because hitting chuffa at full speed backwards would be very bad. Yep. Because the deflector's pointed forward. Uh, a lot of ships have some sort of uh, variable to deal against this. Uh, of course, if we get into, like, 40K, they just layer armor on top of armor and call it good. 
Yeah, just like, eh, it's fine. It's fine. We just slapped another three feet of fucking steel over the hole and called it good. Yeah, that's mm. that sounds like that. The very basics is something uh, any GM should look at. Is like, how does a space station defend against any sort of particle bombardment in space? Right. You know, um, how does their power core work? How do they communicate? But beyond the basics of getting this down, how do they eat? Where do they grow food? How do they deal with muscular atrophy in space? Beyond that, you really don't need to get into the very deep, in-depth variables unless you're running like a 20-year campaign. Even then, it's going to take forever. Even then, yeah, it's going to take forever. So a space campaign is best left, I dare say, down to Earth. (laughs) It is a rather... Fitting, albeit terrible it, pun. It, it, it's a metaphor, you know, and it still it still holds true. You know, well, when you're when you're designing your space empire and all the pieces that go within it, you know, sure, your sky's the limit, your head's in the clouds, but keep your feet grounded. Yeah, and again, another thing about galactic empires is where are they getting their building materials for possibly a you know space based military fleet. Uh, it's easy. They're harvesting fat chicks. <laughs> <laughs> are they are they strip mining an entire planet? Are they just... Oh, hey, there's a bunch of meteorites over there. We'll just go harvest over there. Gas mm-hmm. giant harvesting. There's a lot of different methods of gaining resource in space. Which was interesting to look at how they did it in Star Wars because they had actual planet-side mining operations... That then ferried it up to space, but then they also had places like Cloud City where their whole thing was, hi, we're just collecting this specific gas that's in the single band of this planet. It was rather interesting how they were able to work that into the background of just a whole bunch of story stuff. Yeah. It it does... Very apt point regarding that. It's How does your... How does your galactic empire manage those resources? You don't need to, again, you don't need to get into minutia, but like, oh, well, uh, 20% of this is just straight military. All that crap is theirs. It's one of those things that can be overlooked. It's like, and every game has it, and your space empire is obviously going to have some form of currency, credits, or trading format. You don't need to get into the stock market of your galactic empire. You don't need to get into the ebb and tide of investment strategies, returns on investments, you know, growth, short-term versus long-term uh, investments, protracted who's investments. Who's running a Ponzi scheme? Right who's now? running a Ponzi right now? Who's doing the? Uh, what guy has been uh, critical to the pyramid scheme that changed the financial law within sector two two one three? You don't need to get into that. You know it. Again, it's one of those things where, you know, dumbing it down just a little bit will help in the long run. Yeah, it certainly applies, because, like, like we've mentioned several times, space is big. Galactic Empire is big, big. Yeah, the bigger you make your play space in your campaign, the more information you technically have to stuff into your game. And with that much, you can just go into information overload so easy. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's... Like I said, doing one kingdom is hard enough. Doing an entire galaxy? Yeah, trying fights. to do an entire planet of kingdoms. Yeah, doing an entire planet of kingdoms, yeah. I only, like, do, fuck, 12 and <laughs> call it good at that point. I'm like, okay, there's 12 kingdoms. Those are the biggest, baddest, most major kingdoms the players will encounter. There's a fuck ton of smaller ones, of course. 
There's nation states, duh. But these are the movers and shakers who influence the most of the world's politics. Done. Yeah. Yep. The group stale may run into King Erasmus the randomly biased, but not today. I've got the script going. They're going that way, towards those mountains that are quest-worthy. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Other big galactic things. Trying to keep everything to where it's, you know... Random encounters. You're going to have space pirates. It happens. Where there's culture, there is piracy. with pirates. <laughs> it is. And, you know, as with all piracy, some of it is like, well, I just need to feed my family. And others are just like, fuck that, thrill of the hunt. There will always be those two mm. variants of, of pirates and probably some more types. And space is no different. It's just their methods are a little bit more thought out. But what are some other random encounters? I mean, life out in the void is... Eh, I mean, I would always try and run that as like, well, you happened through this area where a long, long time ago this species or group put a trap and it's a giant robotic thing that's attacking you that looks like a squid but is, you know, legally distinct from actual squids. <laughs> <laughs> Which is strangely like a giant claw that comes down from the sky and... Casually just grabs your ship, but you keep slipping out of the claw <laughs> while it tries to put you in a hole somewhere nearby in a planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But, you know, running into stuff like that or ooh, running in different phases, like, the easiest would probably be during the expansion era. Because you're like, we're going out where no one's gone before. Well, yeah, that new also includes things like the Fermi Paradox, which states that us, right now as humans should be living in our galaxy with at least, like, 32 other species currently, unless uh-huh. we are the precursor race. Because our galaxy, as we know it, are, is pretty fucking young. So we could be one of the first intelligent species, or I should say sapient species, to arrive in this playing field right now. We're early to the ball game. Nobody else is around yet. Or... Worse is that sapient species actually like do grow exponentially fast. It's, it's, it's just that the uh, things that create life that could be sapient and sentient are actually really easy to come by, more easy than we currently know, mm-hmm. and we're actually really late to the party. Yeah, you know, the, the, yeah. When you include things like this, it gets really weird out there. You know, and you, you got to think about this. Of course, you know, everybody wants extra alien species. And, of course, space elves, we all know they were there first. Apparently. In every setting, elves were always like the precursor race to everybody else. Or so they like to say. So they like to say. Funny thing is, something I get from a lot of it when looking at lore and stuff, is they're basically, sorry to put it in biblical terms, but they're like the Lucifer. They were designed by the precursor race. They were the special special. But we were just a little specialer in the eyes of the big precursors. And they're always mad about it. So You hear that, Mayroon's Dagon? <laughs> We're specialer. <laughs> Take your Daedra and fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just one of those things, if it always seems like when they're like, oh, well, this is... The- the elves were first and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, and they hate humans because we were created at all. 
Yeah, yeah. actually, uh, like in the Elder Scrolls lore, it's really funny because elves are the precursor race uh, before humans, and that's exactly pretty much how things get boiled down. Is elves just showed up and they're like, "Hey, we're really special, but we're the last." Uh, genetic offspring that the lowest you can get on the totem pole and still have magic of being descendants of the Adra. And then along comes humans. They're like, Hey bro, what's up? And elves are like, ah, I, I hate you. You must die. <laughs> it's, it's totally the middle kid syndrome. Think about it. Yeah. I the can new see it. Baby. My uncles tried to kill them, kill each other. Well, through their twenties, pushing the baby stroller out into the road. Wow. Walking up behind the other one going, click! <laughs> Just popping their neck. Yeah. You know, it, it happens. I'm, I've never tried to murder a family member. I'm just putting that on public record. <laughs> just in case. There is no statute of limitation on that, is there? I'm not sure, and I don't want to test it. But Seems reasonable. Just saying. But anyways, it, it's one of those things when you get into the breakdown, the nitty-gritty of species and conflicting empires even. The way you build that, you're like, all right, the Klingons don't like the Romulans, but they really have a hard-on against, um, I don't know, the, the, the fucking Vulcans. Even though they're the same thing, just different flavors. Um, well, no, actually, there's a lot of lore between Vulcans and Romulans. It, it's... Something you don't care about because they're space elves, and this it's fair, it's fair. At least, but they're still not ruffleheads, which makes them better. <laughs> uh, cling on all the way, man. I'm sorry. Smooth foreheads, ruffle foreheads, smooth foreheads again. Now, space Jesus ruffled foreheads, no hair. Jaula, fucking what the? I know, right? Burnham, fucking <laughs> fuck Discovery. Fuck Discovery in the fucking neck with a piece of rusted crowbar. Oh, God. And I'm not talking just... No, no, just hate fuck it. Hate fuck Discovery with a rusted crowbar in the throat. But would you hate fuck it raw? I would hate fuck Discovery with a cheese grater. I would specifically get a cheese grater-shaped condom or a condom-shaped cheese grater or whatever. It doesn't matter. And just hate fuck it. I don't care if I'm going to rub myself raw. Discovery deserves the pain more than I do. It, it is terribly done. <sighs> oh my god, they made fun of a guy shoveling the dead remains of another crew member into a bucket. No hazmat suits. They're making fun of a, someone from the lower decks. It's like, what the fuck? This was not Roddenberry's design. Nope. Right? And of course, that is a really shitty made space empire. It is. Because it all centers around pretty much one character. And that, that who's the a, bestest ever? Who's the bestest ever? And that is a huge mistake uh, in any galactic empire, unless the story is specifically about that exact focal moment. It's a passing in time. Not it's a, a passing in time. Unfortunately, time. Discovery is supposed to be about the bringing back of the Federation, not Burnham's side adventure. So it's supposed to be encompassing a greater scope, supposedly. But they make the focus on like a certain amount of characters, and then they give them a bunch of gratis for strange and inexplicable reasons. But the counterpoint to this is, of course, you have a focal character in Muad'Dib, and that makes sense because that he is the focal point of that chapter of the story. It's not just about Arrakis. It's not just about the sandworms. It's about the moments in time and how he played in those moments. And the story focuses on him, and everything else just kind of happens around happens it. around him. 
and then you get to the so he, actual God Emperor of Dune, yeah. where for, what, a thousand years or more, he subjugated humanity to live basically an agrarian lifestyle and pressured the entire thing to where when he finally died and went back to the sands, humanity spread out farther and faster than ever before so that it would be free from ever being pushed down again. Exactly. The whole... Uh there's a huge difference between the way Discovery is run and, and Dune is run. And the problem is that I see is like Dune is it's great because they, they focus on Muad'Dib and especially during the uh, the Arrakis portion of it because he is a central player in the history at that moment. Mm-hmm. But they don't focus on the outside political stuff uh, that coming just in. Happens. It just kind of happens. You know, life is going to continue on regardless of what the main character does. We're in Discovery, everything centers around Burnham, and whatever Burnham does, the universe responds. And it's a very main character type of thing. It's not that life happens without Burnham doing things. No, life will only happen if Burnham is on screen at that time doing something. Which is absurd. And, like, the only way that you can really effectively make this a long-term thing for an Empire is if it's a hive mind. If it's a hive mind... All bets are off, and it is one entity with many... Well, I bet the Discovery writing team is a hive mind. Probably. Well, and then you look at the complete schlock that was Picard. I didn't make it past the first episode. Yeah, as soon as I heard the sheer fucking arrogance, I was like, nope! I just... I, I just wanted to, you know, bang the main character, and that was it. Then she died, and I was like, well, I guess this show's over for me. And then she appears, and I'm like, wait a minute. So the main character has a evil twin? Mm. What am I, watching Space Dallas? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to... More no. of a Days of Our Lives. Maybe, yeah, more so. Days of Our Lives. I'm like, I already know Star Trek is a goddamn soap opera, but please don't make it so damn obvious. <laughs> Well, it, it's true what they what they say because I remember ten years ago when I watched a documentary about it because all the Star Treks were done at that point, and they were like, "Yeah, each and every one got a darker and darker outlook on you know the future, and now we see the darkest of those outlooks now, where it's no, we're not going to be better than our past selves. We're going to become worse, and we're just going to fuck this, fuck that, fucking the." Although the, the Dominion War uh, episodes definitely had their place, because the the biggest weakness the uh, the fucking Federation had at that point is they had become complicit. They had, and Q pointed this out in Next Generation when they first get introduced to the Borg. He's like, "Look, Picard, you guys are explorers and everything, but there's shit out there you're not even ready for." And the Federation had become so complicit that their cruisers, basically their exploration cruisers. We're just family cruise ships. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, 300 and some people on board and over half were just families and what have you. Yeah, they, they started out basically as Space Navy vessels and they moved into the cruise liner business. Q basically woke them up back in Next Generation and said, look, there's still bad stuff out there you guys aren't prepared for. And then when they encountered the Dominion a little later, that was an oh shit moment because the Dominion was technologically superior to them in every way, plus swarm fighters of um uh, swarm fighters of uh, Jaeger bombers 
Uh, <laughs> um, uh, at the snack bar, because uh, they do die for their religion. I, I just can't say it yeah. straight up, but I think we, we get, get the gist. We get the gist. Um, kamikaze. But, They're kamikazes. You yeah. say that word. Hey, every kamikaze is a great pilot at least once. <laughs> anyway, they, they run into uh, the guys who are just fanatically uh, militant and fanatical about their objectives and everything, and plus they're jacked up and good to go. They're on drugs, and they love their... Um, Juicers, <laughs> juicers, pilots, and yeah. you know, zealous long, fanatics. Long story short, and, and long story short, you know, Garrick. If you cut out all the scenes where him and Gar- uh, Cisco are talking, you can see Garrick basically twist Cisco to his way of thinking to get Cisco to agree that they've got to do bad things for the greater good. Mm-hmm. You know, Garrick fucking plays him. And that is basically, uh, it's the fall of the innocence of the Empire, but it's also a hell of a wake-up call that the Federation has gotten too complicit in their Too moral comfortable su- jerking its own dick. Yeah, circle jerking themselves with their moral superiority. Yeah. It is darker, yes, but you, you still have to be prepared for the worst-case scenario. The Federation stopped doing that because they had become so powerful. They were like, well, there is no worst-case scenario anymore. The worst case scenario happened long ago when we first met the Romulans. And we're yeah. done with Klingon. The, the Klingon Wars are over since their moon blew up. Who cares? There's nothing and else out there to challenge the us. Ferengi just want to sell you a knockoff fucking hyperspace unit. Yep. Got so, the Ferengi. And of course this plays really well in, in uh, when you're doing space empires is of course again with the rise and fall of an empire. The Federation as an empire did have its rise when it first started with Kirk and Christopher Pike, it was still a military organization. Then we get in the next generation, it's not so military. You get in the Voyager, and they're just explorers. So they do their lost in space thing. But it, the uh, Voyager ship was built after the Wolf 359 incident, so it was more upgraded, but it was still a bit more of a... Pansy. Pansy ship. Then you get in the DS9, and it's like crapsticks. Yeah, the, the, the decline of the Empire. The decline of the Empire. You know, and like, then you get into... They uh, had to pull every string to stay standing in that Oh, one. yeah. They actually had hard times. They had hard times, and had certain events not played out the way they did, they would have collapsed. I mean, they were losing core territory worlds to the Dominion. Yeah, and even beyond that, they were in stalemate with the surrounding powers. Yeah. Well, they lost... Um, not Bajor. Um, Beta Zed. They mm-hmm. lost that planet, and to put it into perspective for anybody looking at an American map, this is like, say, a foreign power deciding to invade America. All of their boats and ships are attacking the shit out of one coast or the other. They're winning, and then suddenly you turn around and you're like, when the hell did we lose Utah? No one cares about Utah. <laughs> well, nobody cares about Beta Z either, but still, you turn around and you're like, how did they get so deep into our territory to take over an entire state? Mm-hmm. You know, like the Dominion was whipping their ass. So this is an empire decline. It also points out a lot of the stuff that was going on between Garrick, Cisco, the Federation, the Andorians, and so on. If anybody cares to read Machiavelli's works, I imagine this would be a good time to turn off the podcast, read his works before building your political intrigue section of your space campaign. Or any campaign, really, because yeah. a good political intrigue one requires that. But. We are well past our mark, and oh. even with doing some editing. Yeah. So we will definitely be revisiting Space Empires, and we'll try and listen to this first and pick it up from where we left off no, another we won't. time. 
I said try. (laughs) I'm out of lemonade. I'm not going to listen to anything. So on that, Darth Blasphemous signing off. I'm going to say that a really good game to play to give you sort of an idea of how running a Galactic Empire actually is, even though it is a game, is Stellaris. Like, they've I just got news a few hours ago that they're actually putting out a board game. They're on the consoles. They're on the PCs. It's It gives you a very different perspective on galactic empires. And I think it's worth doing if you're going to try and bring this into a role-playing setting. Kazarkan, back to this, guys. Gengo, I'm going back to my crypt. I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. And for some goddamn reason, the trees are speaking. Leroy Dragon!